Good morning, again. We are wrapping up our series on Malachi. We've got this week and next, and then we'll be starting a new series in March uh, on the center of Romans. That is page 802. We're looking at Malachi 3, verses 13 to 18, if you're using a pew Bible. Most of you immediately will recognize this. It is the Golden Gate Bridge. It's a suspension bridge that spans a one-mile-wide strait between the San Francisco Bay and the Pacific Ocean. It connects the city of San Francisco to the northern Marin County. Um, When it was built in 1937, it was considered one of the technological wonders of the world. It had the longest span of any bridge, of a suspension bridge, 4,200 feet. It was 786 feet high. It was a wonder to behold. Uh, it was, it's a beautiful bridge. Frommer's um, travel guide describes it as possibly the most beautiful and certainly the most photographed bridge in the world. But here's the thing. It's still just a bridge. The point of a bridge is to get you from this place to that place as quickly and efficiently as possible. A bridge is a utilitarian thing. It's to make your travel easier. How are we tempted to treat God like a bridge? as a means to some other desired goal. I'm over here, I really want to get there, maybe God can get me there. How can you know if this is one of the ways that you're treating God? I think a test is how do you respond to him when things don't go the way you want them to? When you are facing some particular challenge or hardship That's where Israel finds themselves in the book of Malachi. If you are here this morning and you're investigating the Christian faith, we're really glad that you came out and joined us this morning. We would love to interact with you about any questions you have. Uh, It might be that you are here this morning because you're thinking there is something missing in my life. Or you're facing some problem. There's some particular challenge and you're thinking maybe God can help. You're right, and that's okay. That is part of how we begin seeking him when we come to the end of ourselves and we realize that we need help. But if all we do is treat him as a bridge to some other destination, we're missing the point of this passage because it points us to a God who is deeply personal who knows all the details of your life and cares about them. He's paying attention because, as you'll see, his intention is to bless you. So please rise if you are able and join me in reading Malachi 3, verses 13 to 18. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say... How have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? 
and now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I've got a simple outline in your bulletin there. There's four points we're going to talk about. First, the servants of fortune. Then look at the fellowship of the fearing, the book of the beloved, and finally, the faithful servant son. As we've been going through Malachi, we've, we've seen that it is built on a series of disputes. There are six disputes in the book of Malachi where the people are questioning God and interacting with him, not understanding what he's doing, and he's revealing himself to them more and more. Today and next week, we're looking at this final dispute in the book of Malachi. They've been questioning God's goodness and faithfulness, and now things are coming to a head. You've heard of soldiers of fortune, right? Somebody who's a hired gun who will go out and fight for money. Well, I'm referring to the Israelites here as servants of fortune. They have a mercenary faith because they are primarily concerned with how obedience and service is going to benefit them in the short term. I will obey you, God, as long as I'm getting something out of the deal, is what they're saying. And it's reflected in, in the word choice here. You'll see um, that they say, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge? I should have said, uh, keep the Bible open if you have it there. Uh, page 802, we'll be walking through the passage this Hebrew word for profit is a technical term. It comes from carpet making, and it basically means taking my cut. Am I getting my fair share here? They're upset because they have this kind of cause and effect idea with faith. That if I do my thing, if I obey or are penitent, that's what it means in verse 14, walking around in mourning. You've heard of sackcloth and ashes, right? They're dressed in this mourning garb like a penitent. Uh, if I do this, then I should be receiving some kind of material blessing. There should be prosperity for me if I obey you. They've been serving God in order to get for themselves. They've used God as a bridge. I want to get to that land of prosperity. How do I get there? And listen, God is not interested in that kind of relationship. And if we're honest with each other, neither are we. We don't want a relationship with someone like that. Why? Because you are made in his image. You were created to be known 
by him and known by one another. That's what a real relationship is. That's why we recoil at things and despise people that we would say, oh, that person's a gold digger. They're only after him or her for the money. Their love is mercenary. And we recoil at that because we're created for real relationship, to experience intimacy, knowing one another and being known. And so this passage is revealing that Israel has the heart of the elder brother from the parable of the prodigal son. That's in Luke 15. And, And many have described this as the parable of the two lost sons, This is a famous painting. I'm sure you've seen it before from Rembrandt. And you see the elder brother is off to the right. The younger brother is on his knees prostrate before the father who's coming and blessing him and forgiving him. If you're not familiar with the story, the younger son asked for his inheritance up front. He's basically saying to the father, I don't care about relationship. I value you for your money. Give me my half now. And he leaves and he goes and squanders this fortune in wild living. But then he comes to his senses, and he comes home. And as this painting beautifully portrays, the father embraces him. Look at his shoulders just leaning in on his son. And he says, let's bring a robe for him. Let's put a ring on his finger. Let's put shoes on his feet. I want to kill the fattened calf. I want to have a party to celebrate because my son was dead and he's been returned to us alive. He was lost and he's found and so they start to celebrate. The older brother is not so excited. He actually refuses to go into the party. The father comes out on the porch and pleads with him, would you come in and celebrate And what you get is a revelation of his heart. Look, these many years, he says, I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him when he comes back. Here's the thing. His heart is exposed. He doesn't delight in the father either. He is in this relationship for the money, too. He's just a little more savvy. And so what is he saying? That's my calf. All of the rest of this is now mine. How could you kill my calf for him? I don't really want relationship with you. I really just want the stuff. He's a hard-hearted, judgmental person in the face of this tender love of a father that rejoices to show mercy to any children who will humble themselves to receive it. And this is the heart of Israel. So they're observing, back to our passage here, and they're saying... um, Verse 15, now we call the arrogant blessed, the evildoers prosper... Why should we bother to obey? One of the things that has been sobering to me as we have been reading through Malachi together 
is the fact that they are so spiritually blind. They don't get it, right? They think they have legitimate questions. They think they have a legitimate argument, and God keeps saying, wait a minute, you've got to look at yourself here. Here's what is sobering for me. Spiritually blind people believe that they can see. Do we believe that we can see? Uh, it has been convicting me for me this week, and a, I've started a new prayer. It really should have started at the beginning of January. Where am I spiritually blind? What am I not seeing? I would urge you, brothers and sisters, that we need to be praying that prayer uh, because the reality is we're not different than God's people through the ages. This same problem happens when Jesus shows up hundreds of years later and, and is, is confronting the religious leaders of his day. Um, so where does this passage shine its light into our own hearts? Where are you like a servant of fortune, transactional with God, in a utilitarian relationship, obeying in order to get And you'll have seen here that a mercenary faith like that leads to twisted theology. So again, in verse 15, they're calling the arrogant blessed. And they're saying evildoers prosper. They're escaping. It's the exact same word, actually, um, where it says that they are... Uh, testing and escaping, put God to the test, it's the exact same language that was used in the passage we saw last week where God invites us to put him to the test. And I talked about last week how that means taking a step of faith towards him and he promises to meet us there and, and bless any step of obedience. Well, here the people are saying, you know what, they're walking away from you to test you and they're being blessed. Um, it's revisiting what Jake preached on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, where is the God of justice? He delights in evildoers, it said in that passage. And that's why God is saying, hey, you're speaking hard words against me here. He seems to be addressing a more advanced stage of religious cynicism, where they're now, now they're saying, why should we even obey? Why should we even obey you? And as you have seen, they, they have a completely upside-down upside view of the universe. They're calling the arrogant blessed. But the Bible says the exact opposite. Look at just a couple of verses here. Proverbs 16, everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. In fact, earlier in Proverbs, Proverbs 6 Haughty eyes, a proud look, tops the list of things that God says, I hate. Isaiah 13, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. The arrogant are not blessed. Evildoers are not going to prosper and here's a, a, a quote that's a couple times in the New Testament from Proverbs 3.34 where it says, God opposes the proud but gives great grace to the humble, quoted by James and by, by Peter. In their cynicism, 
they're beginning to believe the exact opposite of what is true. And they're starting to encourage each other in these types of despairing lies. This is incredibly dangerous. And and I just want to ask, again, where do we need to look and say, how are we like this? Where are we in danger of these things? How can we be like Israel and be cynical and speak hopeless or despairing words to each other? One particular place that has come to mind is the decline of the American church. We should be sobered by that. We should be saying, what's wrong? We should be saying, what do we need to see in ourselves? Um, There's a lot of important questions we need to ask. But what I don't want to hear Christians saying is, the sky is falling, the church is going extinct. Because Jesus promised to build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail. It will never be extinct. This is my concern. Depending on the media that you listen to or prominent Christian leaders, there is a lot of fear-mongering going on in our culture, and God's people are buying into it. Um, Don't believe the lies. We need to speak truth to each other. This is, by the way, why things like the all-church prayer meeting are so important. Because we need to gather together and encourage each other with what is true. Encourage each other with the ways that Jesus is building his church. Recounting to one another his faithfulness. Um, praying his promises together. So the passage is pointing us to an important corrective, what I've called the fellowship of the fearing. If you look at verse 16, it says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And this is a right fear. This is being in awe and reverencing the one who is ruling over all things. So I want to take a moment and just consider the importance of this. Just as cynicism can fester and grow if we are speaking um, despairing words to each other, there's also a snowball effect to encouragement and hope if we speak those words to one another. This is how the New Testament calls us to speak to each other. Ephesians 4, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And again from Colossians 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Is the way we're speaking to each other corrupting? Does it lead to despair and hopelessness? This is what was going on with the majority of Israel. They were saying to each other, do you see those pagans over there? They're prospering. We're not. It's fruitless for us to obey and follow God. How are we doing with building each other up? Did you notice in that Ephesians passage, it says that our words can be conduits of grace to one another. God wants to use your words to be a conduit of grace to the other believers in your life. 
It's, it's a glorious and a critical calling for us to walk in. He wants our words, as it, it's, it's said in um, Colossians, to have thankfulness. He wants us to have Jesus' words, words of life that we would share with each other that would be flowing up out of who he is, the relationship we have with him that is flowing to one another. May, may God give us grace that these things would be what characterizes our conversations with each other. Um, I forgot to plug the discussion questions. Part of the reason for the discussion questions is that it would facilitate these kind of conversations uh, that are listed in your bulletin there. Now look again at verse 16. The Lord paid attention, and he heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him. Notice the compounding language. He's using two verbs here. God is watching closely, and he's listening carefully to what is going on. The prevalent belief was that God was kind of an absentee landlord. He had maybe got things spinning, kind of like a deist. He got the world spinning and then went away. He wasn't involved in the details. And this passage is saying, no, 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 no. He is involved in every detail. He is carefully watching. He's recording everything in what I'm calling the book of the beloved. And we, and we need both parts of this. God is keeping a book. Throughout the Bible, it, it talks about God keeping a careful record. This was done by monarchs in the ancient Near East. You might remember the, begin, uh, the, the beginning of es Esther 6, where King Xerxes is having trouble sleeping. He's kind of tossing and turning. He says, you know what? Bring the book of all the things that I've done and read that to me. And through First and Second Kings, there's a repeated refrain at the end of each king are not the deeds of so-and-so written in the chronicles of the kings of Israel? In other words, I've recorded for you what you need to know theologically. That's what has survived, the theological history that we need. But apparently, they wrote a bunch of other books about how great they were and all the things that they did. Those did not survive. <laughs> so this was a regular thing where kings kept record of their actions but the Lord is saying, I am keeping a record of your actions. Psalm 139 says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. What is he saying? I knew when you would be born, I know when you are going to die. And every day of your life, I am orchestrating. Yes. I am intimately involved in the details of your life. Now, earlier in the psalm, David says, you know, he is watching every move I make. He sees when I wake up in the morning. He sees when I lay down at night. He sees me through my day, walking around, doing all the stuff that I'm doing. He knows every word before it's off my tongue. He knows all of my thoughts from afar. If you are at all self-aware, that's a little sobering. 
All my thoughts and all my words are known by God. I have never had a secret moment in my life, even in my head. I have never had a secret moment. Now, if you don't know him, this is a really scary thought. Because all of us have had thoughts that we don't want other people to know about. All of us have done things we don't want other people to know about. And if you don't know who he is, then maybe you see this book as a record of everything I've done wrong and God just can't wait to bring down the hammer of judgment on me. Um, But that's not who he is. In fact, when David recounts these wondrous things of him paying such close attention, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful to me. It's lofty. I can't attain it. This is mind-blowing to me that you're paying that close attention to my life. Psalm 130 is an important corrective if you have that view. If you're here as someone investigating the Christian faith, what does this book mean? If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. We talked a number of weeks ago about fear of the Lord, what that means, an awe and a reverence, a worshipful place before him as a creature, before our creator. That's where you end up when you know that he is a forgiving and merciful God. And that's why David rejoices at his nearness. So it is a book of things that God is keeping, but is a book of the beloved, and that is incredibly important. Psalm 139 goes on, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I would count them, they are more than the sand. Jochum Hendricks is a German artist. This is a display that is in the Frankfurt Museum of Applied Arts. He and 12 assistants spent 1,000 hours counting the number of grains of sand in a cup. Eight ounces of sand by volume contains 3,281,579 grains of sand. I don't know about you, but if God just had a cup of thoughts towards me, I'd be amazed. But he's saying, go to the beach. Those are my thoughts towards you. That is my heart towards you. Not keeping an account of your iniquity so that I can crush because I show forgiveness. But do you see I'm paying attention because I love you? He cares about all the details of our life because he is a personal God. He's orchestrating all things, whether you are aware and believe that he's doing it or not. Johnny Erickson Tata wrote a wonderful book called When God Weeps with a guy named Steve Estes. If you're not familiar with her, uh, she broke her neck at 17 years old. She's now, um, she was an athlete and she was diving in the surf and, and broke her neck and became a quadriplegic. She's now 74. She has had many, many decades of suffering. 
a friend of mine in referring to this book because the book is about how God meets us in our suffering and about his sovereignty. And a friend of mine says, you know, when a quadriplegic talks about the sovereignty of God in suffering, people listen. She knows who he is. She knows the love that he has for her so that despite the pain that is a daily reality of her life, she loves him. So look at the description that it gives us in verse 17. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, when I make up my treasured possession. Do you see why God refuses to build a bridge for you? He doesn't want to be a bridge because he wants a real relationship. He's not holding out on you if you're not getting what you want. He's not building a record so that he can smite you. He wants a real relationship. He wants to be known by you. He loves you, and he wants you to love him back. Psalm 37 puts it like this, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. We were created by God for deep, intimate relationship. You were created in his image to know him. When you delight yourself in him, you will have received the desires of your heart. It's not saying do this to get that. Do this and you'll have it. The scariest words in the New Testament Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. How is Jesus making a distinction You did all this religious stuff. You're bringing me your record. Look at all that you've done. As in Malachi's day, there is a boasting in Matthew 7 of their religious activity. And Jesus is saying it was devoid of relationship. It was transactional. You thought you could make me your debtor. You thought you could come and you would have a guarantee pass. But what I wanted all along was your heart. And you withheld it from me. I never knew you. God, what God wants is actually pretty simple. He wants the only thing you can actually give him. You see, he's the creator. He's he's made it all. He's given you everything you have. What is the one thing you can give? Your affections, your delight, your worship. That's all you have to give. He's saying, I delight in you. Will you delight in me? So how can we learn to delight in him? Briefly, 
We need to look to the one who is the faithful servant son. Look again at verse 17. I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves them. Are we spared because we serve faithfully? No. We're spared because there is one who is the faithful servant son. He lived his life perfectly. He honored his father in all that he did. His life was was a constant service to God and service to other people. He's the only one who faithfully fulfilled the two great commands, to love God and to love one another. Day after day after day, tirelessly healing the sick, teaching, feeding the masses, putting up with their unbelief, dealing with the obtuseness of his disciples, constantly showing love to the people around him. And all of that is worth emulating if we were able, but it goes further. He laid down his life. The father crushed what was most precious to him in order to fulfill what he says here, that we are loved by him, his treasured possession. He crushed what was most precious to him so that we could become that treasured possession. The passage is saying God is going to make a distinction, verse 18, between the righteous and the wicked. Jesus, the righteous one, was executed with criminals, with rebels against the Roman Empire. Isaiah 53 says, they made his grave with the wicked. They made a distinction the one who was perfect in every way, the one who was righteous, said, I will be identified with the wicked. He faced condemnation so that we can be forgiven. He wasn't spared so that we can be spared. You'll notice the language. As a man spares his son who serves him, it's kind of like that. It's not really going to be that because I'm going to spare you. You actually didn't earn it. But he did. He did. He was the one who faithfully served and was spared, wasn't spared so that you and I would be. There's another book that's mentioned at the end of the Bible. The Lamb's Book of Life. It says in Revelation 21, nothing unclean will ever enter the new Jerusalem, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. How do you get in? How do you get your name in that book? Turn to him or return to him. If, as my friend Jim said at my installation, you've been playing hard to get. Return to him. He wants you to know his love for you. He wants you to know that all this bridge building hasn't deepened your intimacy. It hasn't satisfied you. And even when you've gotten what you've wanted, it hasn't satisfied you because he doesn't want to be a bridge. Begin engaging him. For some of you, that might mean there are religious duties you need to put down but you actually just need to start talking with him. Don't use reading this book as a duty. If you're not communing with him when you read it, stop reading it and start talking to him. 
and then come back to this book. First time a pastor's ever told me not to read the Bible. <laughs> then come back to the book and commune with him because he does want to meet you here. It is meeting with a person, but don't check off a box because he wants more than that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you that you are good. Thank you that you don't treat us the way our sins deserve. Thank you that you delight to show mercy. Lord, we have a, a thimble full of awareness, and yet we are delighted that you don't repay us according to our iniquities, that you delight to forgive. Thank you for not keeping a record of wrongs. Would you uh, give us eyes to see Jesus high and lifted up? Would we see the faithful servant son, the one who wasn't a servant of fortune, the one who laid down his life, who gave everything he had to give, who wasn't spared so that we could be, that our hearts would be warm, that we would begin to delight and have the relationship with you that you desire and is what is best for our souls. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.